Thankful for everyone's support and all the prayers for this mission trip. I think God is leading us in ways that uh, probably we are, 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 are not certain, and it's a little unsettling, but it's also very exciting. And so given how God is leading us, I uh, just wanted to cover the passage today from Acts 4. So if you just, the first four verses, just follow along with me. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So first of all, I just want to pause here and say, like Apostle Peter and John, what are they doing? They are teaching the people and proclaiming, it says, they're speaking to the people, and they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the message of the gospel is powerfully rooted in this historical event of the resurrection. So that we proclaim that Jesus actually arose from the dead and is alive today. And I think this shatters any kind of preconceived notions that people might have. Uh, about the world and particularly about naturalism that this material world is all that there is because if indeed it is true that Jesus rose, like it's an understatement to say that life has changed, uh, it's just like dramatically uh, has changed everything. So notice this response, however, um, after they heard this message of the gospel, it's, uh, they were actually greatly annoyed at this teaching. And I found that interesting because the gospel message seems to be a very positive thing, right? Jesus rose from the dead. Wow, there must be something that I need to go and seek out and find out for myself. But the gospel message seems to have this kind of effect. Either you do that, you receive this message, because notice it says that the number of people who believed were about 5,000 men. It's just men we're talking about. But then also, there are people who are greatly annoyed. And so, consider this. Like, why is this message, like, why such divergent responses? And I think, just follow along with me. The gospel. The message starts with the claim that there is a God. And that He is a creator. And He is the rightful, supreme authority. And consequently... The, the universe is not some cosmic accident, that we are not orphaned in this world, that there's a purpose to our existence, and therefore there's a purpose to our own lives. And then that we all share this common destiny, that without God we are doomed to perish. And when we say perish, when I say perish, I'm not just simply talking about like biological death. When we choose, in other words, to live for ourselves uh, in, in worship of our own gods and reject God's rightful claim on our life, then one day God will say, yeah, either he will just say, I will afford you the dignity of your choice. And that dignity of choice will lead us to be either forever with him or forever separated from him. And to forestall that future, God opened a way for everyone to get back to him as in forestall the perishing part. And that was through his only one and only son, Jesus. So 
This is good news for some, you could see. But for others, it will bring a great annoyance. Why? Because ultimately, I think it's, it's going to disrupt our, our, our life. It's, it's going to disrupt our personal preferences. Because Christianity, more than just simply an idea or concepts, um, it's actually a personal relationship with our Creator, and He has a claim over our life. And therefore, that might run direct in direct conflict with our own personal desires and our own preferences. And so, this is why I think there's such a divergent response. So, whenever we proclaim the gospel, then there is going to be a great risk involved or a great reward because of this variance in response. So knowing that, we still can't be shy about proclaiming this message. Why? Because we know that at best, it will lead people to eternal life. It will bring blessing to people even now, like prior to this passage, Peter and John healed this crippled man. So we need to continue to proclaim this message, the gospel message, uh, even if we know that some will ultimately reject this message. Because on the flip side is, if you do not share, if we do not share, then the stakes are such that they may never get an opportunity to inherit eternal life. And that would be tragic. So my, my question to you here, even before we get too far into this message is, are there people in your life now that you need to proclaim the gospel message to? Because there needs to be this urgency, right? There is great risk. There is great reward. Of course, we know that. But we need to just be able to utter it. Now, Richard Tijen uh, him and his wife, Flo, they lead our church at NC, UNC Chapel Hill. They were here with us this past week, uh, helping us with the youth outreach. And Richard was telling me that he was talking to two high school, high school juniors, I think it was, and at our Friday Gospel Good News event. And after some bantering and building relationships, I mean, this was kind of, it could have been awkward, right? But he basically asked a direct question to them. How do you think God spoke to you tonight? You know, like, can you imagine this is the older guy? Um, and they're just kind of bantering about whatever. And it's like, how do, you, how do you think God spoke to you tonight? And, you know, it must have been a little jarring because they looked at each other, the two, the two girls. And they just like, oh, whatever, they're saying something. And then one, one of them responded, I think God is telling me to go back to church. And then the other person said the same thing. And it's because they said that in high school, they used to go to church, and then they got busy. And they've been, they were convicted. No, I think from tonight, I need to go back. I need to get to know this God. Well, it's just a, a simple ask. But it's hard to utter that word, right? And I'm not saying you just go to any person, hey, man, how did God speak to you tonight? Um, there is a context to that, right? There is a relationship building. But you have to, in the end, be able to ask that question and then proclaim what God is inviting us to consider. We need to utter it. Now, 
In verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And remember, Peter was this cowardly fellow, you know, who couldn't stand up to the servant girl and betrayed Jesus three times. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he betrays him. He couldn't stand up. He was that cowardly. What does that tell you? That he is now bold. Peter and John, bold. And what that tells us is that courage is something that can be grown. That actually, we don't need to just accept that, oh, like, I'm a timid person. I'm a fearful person. Because look at Peter. And what was the difference that caused him to grow in his boldness? And I think the difference, among many other things, is that he discovered that God's words were reliable because Jesus taught the words of eternal life, and then he validated it through the resurrection. Remember, this is post-resurrection of Jesus. And it must have dawned on them, and it must have dawned on Peter. Wait a minute. There's nothing to fear. Jesus' words are true. I don't need to fear death. I don't need to fear suffering. Jesus will walk with me, and I will be in heaven with him one day. Don't you think that would have given him a tremendous sense of boldness, even though Jesus was no longer physically present with them? Now, George MacDonald, he uh, is a Christian minister in the 19th century. He wrote a fairy tale in 1872. It's called The Princess and the Goblin. Has anyone read this? Okay. All right. Okay. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of people that have read it. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's about an eight-year-old princess and who lives in a house, and she's surrounded by goblins in the forest. Okay. And then uh, she discovers that she has a fairy grandmother who is visible actually only to her. And then she tells, this fairy grandmother tells the princess that she's ever in danger, um, that she could always find the fairy grandmother, uh, uh, yeah, grandmother, and then, but because by giving her, she gave her a secret ring that was attached to this thread. And so, any time that she was in danger, she, she would tell the princess, follow the thread, follow the thread. It was a super fine thread. And that thread always led her back home. But sometimes the thread takes her back in a roundabout way. So the story goes that goblins come out of the forest and is on the verge of capturing her. And then she follows the string and it leads her to scary places even, in like even caves, mountains, streams, dangerous situations. But she keeps reminding herself that no matter how scary the situation is, just follow the thread and trust that she will be led back home. And so the fairy tale is George MacDonald's way of communicating that though God is not visible to us, we have his word to guide us. It is reliable as we obey. And this may not necessarily lead us out of danger. In fact, sometimes it may lead us into scarier situations. But through it all, we can look back and we can say God has led us all along, and always back to Him. And the disciples post-resurrection, though they could not visually see Jesus, had this confidence, I can follow the thread. They will always be connected with their Lord and Savior, and that heaven ultimately awaits. And I hope that 
that knowledge for each of us would then create in us a sense of boldness. Jesus is alive and he's leading our lives. And he promises to each of us, no matter the situation, no matter how difficult it gets, that he will lead us home. So we have nothing to fear, particularly when we proclaim this gospel message. Acts 4, 14 through 15 reads, But seeing the man who was healed, beside them they had nothing to say in opposition. So the gospels proclaimed and they had nothing to say. That's interesting that they had nothing to say. That's odd that they would have nothing to say. They should have something to say. Um, they could have actually said a lot. Like, what could they have said? Like, they could have said, brothers, what must we do to have eternal life? Uh, like, that's how the crowds responded. They could have recognized the truth and, and repented that actually the crippled man was healed. It was very evident. He was right there. But why didn't they have much to say? And sometimes we're silent because there's too much to lose. There's too much to lose such that even in front of this double miracle, the miracle of a crippled man being healed and walk, walking again, and the miracle of Peter and John suddenly becoming this bold witness, even in the midst of that, they're just silent and they harden their hearts. And instead, they say, what shall we do with these men? And then they conferred with one another. And it's interesting, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all, and we cannot deny it. Isn't that interesting? The undeniable truth doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to admit to it. Instead, it's just, it's very clear they're closing themselves out, off from this truth. And we get this. When truth comes into conflict with our desires, I think the easiest response is to just deny it, to ignore it, to overlook it. And this is how I think a lot of people deny Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. It doesn't necessarily mean they've studied it and therefore found it like, no, this is not true. I think it's clear from even this response of the Jewish authorities and rulers that people deny truth often because it's inconvenient. It disturbs their peace and the status quo. So what do they do? It says they conferred with one another in verse 15. And what was their brilliant solution? Verse 17 in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. That's their brilliant solution. It's so funny to me. As if that's going to contain them. It's like, I want you to stop teaching the name of Jesus. Stop it. It's like they're trying to cover up the oil spill. You know, like when oil spills happen in the ocean, and you say, you know what, it's going to be okay. Just, it's going to be okay. Meanwhile, the oil is showing up on the Gulf Coast. Animals are being drowned. And it's like, don't tell anyone about this. Okay, well, it's too late. It's out of the bag. Just stop it. But it's out already. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's funny because uh, unbeknownst to them, as history will show, not even death, not even persecution 
can actually quench the spirit of witness. I, anyone who's encountered the gospel experiences this kind of effect where Peter and John say, we cannot help but preaching what we have seen and heard. And so these authorities, they underestimate the power of truth and what the disciples were saying. Again, it wasn't just an old story that they were spreading. Jesus had risen from the dead. The gospel, again, is not just simply an idea or a principle, but it's a belief in a person, and that person is alive. And you can say, no, he's not alive. He's dead. Stop talking about it. But what they experience is, no, we saw him resurrected. We saw him. He is alive. And so how could you say, stop it? Don't say that anymore because they know what they've seen, they know what they've heard, and you cannot help but proclaim that. And in verse 19, Peter and John answered them. That's why it says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Yeah, it's hard to suppress that truth. It will come out to speak the truth then is to obey God because God is saying, no, proclaim this, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey. This message is fundamental, a message that's began, that, that began with the historicity of the resurrection. And that's how the gospel has come down to us today. Once you have an encounter with God, it has this kind of effect. There's nothing that people can do to stop it. You could say, stop it, but no one has been able to. Emperors the, have persecuted the early church. They, they sent them to the Colosseum. They killed people as martyrs, and yet their voice lived on. So really, it's an issue of our own personal obedience. That will be the thing that ultimately stops the gospel from being proclaimed. And so in verse 23, it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So what did they report to them? And I think on the whole, the news that they would have shared to the rest of the brothers and sisters in the church, I think on the whole, don't you think it would have been kind of a discouraging report? I think so, among, among many things. I mean, it's not entirely all discouraging, but I think a bulk of it would have been discouraging because they go to them and they were reporting what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And they would have said that the Sanhedrin didn't respond to the message that Peter gave. And then told them to what? Stop preaching. Stop publicizing. Stop putting A-frames out on the main public square. And so don't you think that's discouraging when, some, when authorities say, stop that. Don't proclaim the gospel anymore. And here you are, you're like, no, like we have to proclaim this. And these authorities who have the power to arrest you say, stop it. That would have been discouraging news. And so it's then really interesting how the church received that discouraging news. And how did they receive it? When they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made, the heaven, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? They responded by raising their voice together in prayer to God. Beautiful picture of that corporate response to God. 
they prayed sovereign Lord. In other words, they reaffirmed his ability that no matter this discouraging situation, that you are still in control. Yes, things look bleak right now. People are trying to thwart our witness, but we are confident that your will and purposes will be done. This perspective of God's sovereignty is perhaps, I think, the, one of the most important teachings that Christians need to have and internalize in times of crisis. When we're going through difficult times and just challenging times, what does it feel like during those moments? Doesn't it feel like the enemy, the devil, is so powerful? Situation seems like so overwhelming. And here we are, we're just like a band of people besieged. And Satan seems to just be one step ahead. At least it seems that way. He's so well-planned, and then we feel so weak in comparison. And at times, just feel outnumbered. How will the gospel ever land in this climate? And yet, Christians serving God throughout history, and particularly I think of the missionaries, serving in unreached areas with the gospel. Like, how do they persevere and endure? And I think it is this prayer, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. Like, you're in control. This is not the final story. And, you know, it's been a powerful experience this past week for me personally being here in New York City because you get to experience the full range of humanity here. I mean, even among the youth, you see the wide range. People aspiring, and then there are people that you meet that are drug addicts, that are not interested in college, and then you already see them falling prey to the forces out there, not just in social media, but just you just feel, look at them and they seem so vulnerable. Like there's no protection. And we're doing, like, a, like we want to share the good news with them. And then there's all these powers that be that seem to interrupt and be obstacles for us to try to bless and protect them. And so such that even like this past week at Brooklyn Tech High School, in Brooklyn, and then I heard that it was raining, and then we went to a McDonald's uh, near the school, and then the manager said, hey, you know, it's raining outside, and you can just use our space. This is a space for large parties, and just use that space, and just feel so loved by, by the manager. I mean, to such an extent, that's like such a rare experience that someone would go out of their way to offer us a hand. I mean, this is the kind of rarity that reminds us that uh, by default, we live in a hostile environment. And, and so it's, it's overall discouraging when there's these obstacles and then you see the need and then you can't, you're just impeded. And so what should we do? And I think we can take our immediate cues from the early church. When they heard it, they lifted their voice just together and they prayed, Sovereign Lord. The, you know, and I would imagine their prayers went something like this. 
the forces seem too overwhelming. But Lord, we know that we need not be discouraged. Evil may have seemed to won the day, but history will show that God will ultimately triumph. And if we, you know, again, I'm just kind of imagining what their prayer, if we become the church that you want us to be, Lord, then there will be nothing that we ultimately will fear. Um, so what is our response to roadblocks and discouragements even as we seek to do his will? How do you deal with difficulties and setbacks as you try to serve God? Make right choices. Um, let's remember... like. I, Isaiah 46.10 says this, declaring then from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will accomplish all my purpose. You see throughout the Bible that God's plan of salvation was not an afterthought necessitated by like an unforeseen circumstance. God is in full control and he will turn whatever obstacles into good. Do you believe this? Yeah. So in verse 26, it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Um, verse 27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Like it's interesting, the prayer goes on to bring up a specific example very recently about how the evil forces were arrayed against Jesus. Herod and Pilate, these were two enemies of Jesus who became friends. Like They're like conspiring together, let's defeat Jesus. Two powerful agents. And what chance does Jesus have against these two powerful forces? But God foresaw the evil and planned to do something good out of that, because it says in verse 20, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yeah, that seems like evil was arrayed against them, but God knew, God understood. He is sovereign over history, and he used that. He even used Herod and Pilate's conspiring to do the greatest thing that ever happened in history. He won our salvation. And on Easter, that's what we celebrate. That his purposes will ultimately triumph. And it turns out that the rest of church history follows this pattern. It seems like powers that be just surround you and you don't see the good or the light through it. Like when Stephen, one of the early magnetic godly witnesses of the church, was martyred, dragged away, stoned to death, oh, the church was discouraged. In fact, they were so discouraged, they had to scatter. You remember that in the book of Acts? And it's tempting to think, sovereign Lord, where are you? How could you allow this godly leader to die just as we were trying to build up your church? And so they scatter in fear. But what does God do through that situation? Remember, even though Stephen doesn't live to see it, what happens is through the scattering after Stephen, Apostle Paul gets converted. And the church in Antioch gets planted. And everywhere they scattered, the gospel was preached. 
And so Jesus' great commission happened through that terrible martyrdom. And in fact, it was a good thing. And it just, with the benefit of hindsight of history, it was God orchestrated. So we can have the courage to obey, even if that leads to difficulty and suffering. And just to share from my own personal experience of having lived through the bulk of our church's history, I feel like I'm kind of living that out as well. Because every time like we as a church, as a, and we're talking about the testimony of one local church, our local church, just imagine all these other testimonies of Christians, but our local church, there have been these punctuated moments um, where we've been up against some obstacle, some difficulty, some challenge, and it seems like, why, Lord, we're just trying to obey you. And I remember in the early 90s, um, we were trying to reach out to non-Christians because largely we were a church that reached out to Christians, and there was no material out there for, for reaching. There was no content, really, not a lot of content to reach non-Christians in a, in a way that was intellectually satisfying. So, um, yeah, it was like frustration. Ah, how come someone didn't come up with something? And then out of that birth, Course 101. And then, and then, like, I think about, like, uh, when seekers started to come and we needed to be even more attractional. There was, like, this flurry of activity at our church because we were like, we don't have creativity. You know, we don't know how to be attractional. You know, like, hey, what's up? Like, we, that's not attractional enough. And so there was a flurry of activity that produced G-Live, the skits that you saw, the gospel skit that we presented this past week, the race of a lifetime. Some of you know that skit. It all was in that period. The four-man skit at Houston Welcome Night. It all was in that narrow period. And then, like, we haven't had such creativity ever since. It was like, for that moment, God said, try to navigate through that. And then we met that challenge, and then it produced that. And then, of course, church planting like, we were faced up against a lot of difficulty and challenges during that time, including a need to mobilize all of our members for ministry. And instead of staying in Berkeley, it was almost like that pattern of Acts 2. It's like scatter. And so we started planting churches everywhere, and it's the reason why we're here in New York City. God was sovereign. Even as we were faced with just really frustrating, difficult situation. And now we're at another important juncture because it seems like the culture is so hostile to college in, on college campuses and in high schools. But let's pray. Sovereign Lord, lead us because that's how God will guide us. You know, Martin Luther, when he was um, an envoy from the Pope, once met Martin Luther and threatened him and with what would follow if he persisted in disobeying. And he warned them that in the end, all of Martin Luther's supporters would desert him. And then he says, where will you be then, Luther? And his response is, then as now, in the hands of God. And so, concretely, let's start with a prayer. Sovereign Lord, I know this situation is hard for me right now. And some of you, it's not just an issue of like the whole, like I'm talking about gospel proclamation, but it's like personal, right? It's a personal spiritual crisis. 
just pray to God, God, you must be leading me through this for a reason, to purify my faith, to develop, like deepen the stakes of my convictions. Maybe that's why I'm going through what I'm going through. Maybe you've received some feedback and it's just really hard on you emotionally, but just see this as God's way of leading your life. So perhaps maybe through this you will mature and you will become a person of greater capacity and blessing. So let's pray for that. And notice in this prayer, they don't pray that the persecution would stop. Stop the pain, Lord. No, instead, their prayer is help us to obey nonetheless. And then secondly, use God's words because they're able to work through this current situation and crisis scripturally. And so they quote Psalm 2, and they're able to look at scripture and wonder, why do the nations rage in vain? And they remember the words of the psalmist, and they're able to immediately apply these words to Jesus. And so biblical Christians know how to scripturally process what they're going through. And so if you're having a hard time, remember the words of scripture. It will guide you. Follow the thread. Follow the thread through those moments. And then you can process it, and it will lead to a burgeoning and a spiritual maturity in your life. The Christians in Acts were saturated in Scripture. And so, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word in boldness. So they go back to their own people, and they, Peter and John go back and they all say, yes, speak your words with all boldness. And that's what I want to leave you with. To enable us to speak boldly. And in order for us to do that, remember, follow the thread. But also, we're in this together. Because they were released to their friends. That's their brothers and sisters. And it's as they share burdens and problems together. And as they lifted up prayers together, they were strengthened and God gave them necessary courage to confront and meet the crisis that they were facing. And so let's pray together that we may meet with boldness the crisis that awaits you and our church in our age that we may continue to proclaim this good news to wherever God calls us to the campuses, on college, or high school, or your city. So let's pray together. Let's take a moment to pray. Whatever crisis you may be facing personally, um, or as you zoom out and you think about the crisis that our church is facing, um, just because the gospel seems impeded in some way, I would just encourage you to pray and start this prayer. Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, you're, you're the Lord over history. You have worked powerfully even, even when the situation seemed so dark and bleak and the forces of evil seemed to surround us. But remember, God can use that situation. So let's pray, Sovereign Lord, and trust that He is there, even if He's invisible, that He's always leading you and guiding you to follow that thread because he will lead you back home. So let's pray together. Uh, dear Lord, we just uh, echo the words of this song that you are able, that you are sovereign. We acknowledge that 
You are our creator and therefore have the power to see that your will gets accomplished. In spite of the challenges and threats and difficulties we see out there and in our own lives. Lord, we pray that we can pray as our early brothers and sisters did. To not cave under the pressure but to remind ourselves through your word the truths so that it gives us strength to overcome. So Lord, I pray that you will give us the resolve to remain faithful, to remain in the center of your will, and help us to find comfort and strength in each other so that we may lift up each other's burdens and in the end you may be glorified through our collective witness. May you be honored and praised once again. In Jesus' name I pray.